Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Dave Baxter and today I'm joined by Ian Mortimer and Matt Page. Uh, they work as co-managers on the Guinness Global Equity Income Fund. Uh, this is perhaps one of the more interesting equity income funds. Um, unlike some of its peers, it doesn't simply chase a high dividend yield. Uh, instead, the team looks for some of the world's highest quality dividend paying stocks, and they seek to generate growth as well as some income. So welcome to both of you. Um, as I outlined, you would perhaps argue you focus on strong companies that pay dividends rather than simply chasing yields. Um, that's interesting in the context of the last 18 months. Um, we've seen plenty of dividend cuts. Um, we've seen lots of changes and perhaps a bit of a healthier background this year. Um, but I suppose um, maybe I'll ask you first, Ian. Um, it'd be interesting to kick off just, just looking at how has the portfolio fared in the last 18 months in terms of kind of dividend strength? And is there anything new that you've learned from this period about kind of what makes a, a quality company, what makes a resilient company when you're, you're considering what to buy? Yeah, no, you're you're dead right. I mean, it's been um, it's been sort of, I guess, from a dividend perspective, um, you know, one of the most sort of difficult markets, I think, uh, and potential, and particularly from you know companies, you know, cancelling or reducing their dividend over that period as well. Um, and you're right in terms of sort of how we're approaching, um, you know, our fund. It is absolutely about really trying to find companies that can pay that sustainable dividend and can grow it over time. Yeah. Mm. These are the types of dividend paying companies that we believe ultimately can outperform over the longer term within the wider group um, of sort of dividend paying companies. And if you look to you know, how our fund actually performed, um, you know, we've been extremely pleased ultimately um, you know, from a perspective of the fund distribution, uh, essentially we pay the flat dividend uh, more or less, um, from uh, 2020 versus 2019, which is in stark contrast to the significant dividend cuts uh, we saw at the index level. Um, and of our 35 companies that we held in the fund uh, across uh, the period of 2020, I think uh, over, I think it was about, I think let's get this right, I think it was 31 of our companies grew their dividend over the period. We had uh, a few stocks that had a flat dividend. We only had one company that reduced their dividends. In fact, we had no companies whatsoever that completely cancelled. And that's kind of followed through into this year, where actually we're continuing to see you know, actually dividend growth surprising us to the upside um, for a lot of the companies we held. And if we kind of go through the reasons why, you know, how do we manage to achieve that? It is really sort of inbuilt into the process. So when we launched the fund, we were really thinking about what factors and types of characteristics of companies could we identify that would correlate most highly to a higher probability of growing your dividend and a, therefore a lower probability of, of cutting it or reducing it? And, you know, people often look at things like the number of years you paid a dividend, the sort of aristocrats argument, mm -hmm. uh, or they look at metrics like payout ratios, for example. And they're a, a useful guide, um, but they actually don't correlate that strongly um, with future dividend growth. Because there's lots of companies that can pay dividends unsustainably you know, going forward just to sort of keep up with that trend um, that mm. actually can't really fundamentally justify it. Whereas actually it's uh, metrics such as return on capital, balance sheet strength, uh, and ultimately the size of the starting dividend yield being more moderate puts you in a really good place in terms of being able to grow that dividend. And that's really what came through last year. So it was the kind of quality of the underlying companies and particularly balance sheet strength. So companies that 
got in, came into this sort of a crisis that was really you know, not well understood and we definitely weren't expecting a sort of pandemic and sort of economic sudden stop. It was the companies that we're owning that have those sorts of characteristics that managed to come through. And they were, you know, defensive type businesses and things like consumer staples, for example, that did you know, perfectly well through the period that you could kind of understand. But it, what was most pleasing was the more cyclical companies we owned in areas such as industrials, for example, that did suffer, you know, a lot of difficulties from a revenue and therefore earnings perspective that managed to come through that and maintain and grow their dividend in many instances. And these are the sort of quality cyclicals we would talk about. Industrial businesses that maybe have higher recurring revenue, for example, stream, or their companies that just have better margins are uh, you know, doing something different or uh, better than their competitors, and that had um, those strong balance sheets that allowed them the flexibility to suffer or weather that storm and actually come out of it stronger. A lot of the companies we saw that, you know, had those difficulties were, you know, management teams talking about the positive impact they could have in terms of we're doing better than our competitors. This is our opportunity to take market share, maybe buy up, do M&A potentially, and they've actually recovered very strongly. So I think it's sort of that combination really of, you know, our approach of, as you rightly said, sort of moderate dividend yield, but quality companies with strong balance sheets underlying um, their businesses uh, are best placed to, you know, not only pay their dividend, but actually grow themselves. And that is the reason they can then maintain that growth going forward. And that's really kind of what we're after. Good businesses that are paying back some of their, um, their cash flows uh, to investors as dividends, uh, as well as allocating capital um, to sort of grow their asset base to therefore uh, improve those cash flows going forward. I suppose what's interesting in the kind of dividend space is people are always asking you know what is a sustainable yield and that's almost the kind of how long is a piece of string type question it's very difficult as you say there are many metrics to to assess um but given the kind of rebasing of dividends we've seen particularly last year are there are there sectors now where you think there are kind of there's more sensible behavior and they're looking more attractive in terms of how they treat their dividends and equally are there any sectors where actually you think there's been less resilience than you would have expected? Maybe Matthew, if I could turn to you. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm not sure I would talk about it necessarily in the context of, um, of sectors. I think we can talk about it a bit sort of regionally and a bit by market cap maybe. But, um, you know, I think certainly last year what we saw was a lot more pain in dividend paying companies in Europe and the UK than we were seeing in the US. So, you know, if you look at, a, at uh, the FTSE 100 and the Eurostox index, around half of companies in each of those indices either cut or cancelled their dividend last year. Whereas when you look at the US, it wasn't nearly as bad. And there are a number of reasons why that why that was you know firstly you had regulators stepping in in europe and the uk and telling the banks not to pay dividends they wanted the banks to uh, hang on to their capital so that they were best placed to be a shock absorber in this you know recessionary period that uh, that, that we were that was sort of dawning at that stage um uh, secondly, you've got the fact that this came at a sort of critical moment for uh, many European companies in the sense that, um, you know, European companies tend to pay a dividend once or maybe twice a year. Um, normally, they're 
you know, management and boards are making that decision in Q1, um, so January through March, uh, and then that dividend normally gets paid out in, in Q2. So the crucial sort of decision-making moment for these companies was coming at the height of the most uncertainty, if you think around, you know, the March time last year when the pandemic was just sort of taking off and we didn't really know what it all meant, they had to make a decision. So those companies that were more concerned and less strong perhaps had to um, make quick decisions to hold on to capital. Whereas in the US, you see companies paying dividends quarterly, typically. So it wasn't as big a fundamental decision for them. They could, you know, pay it out that quarter and see what happens and maybe adjust further down the line. Uh, and the other difference between the European and the U.S. companies, of course, is that um, most U.S. companies will uh, provide part of that shareholder return, if you like, um, in the form of not only a dividend, but also a share buyback. And what we see through history is when times are tough uh, and U.S. companies need to hold on to a bit more cash, they simply pause the share buyback program, um, but are more likely to maintain their dividend. So, you know, those are sort of three important factors, sort of why we saw that that difference last year. Uh, and then you've got to think about, well, you know, what was the underlying impact on those individual industries? Clearly, we saw a, a, a massive impact on the oil sector with, um, you know, the oil spot price turning negative at one point. Clearly, you know, airlines, uh, travel industry was was was, you know, massively affected uh, and therefore it's not surprising that if you're seeing sort of dividend cuts occur in in those sorts of sectors i think generally speaking we saw the the types of sectors that we'd expect to hold up particularly well you know in a difficult environment do exactly that and i think that was you know a, a nice thing to see from our point of view and that, that our thesis that these types of companies were going to be able to weather whatever next whatever the next economic storm was going to be they did indeed come through you know with flying colors and when you sort of look at what this group of companies that we owned going into 2020 would have done in the financial crisis as a completely different sort of trigger, but again, a, a sort of very difficult economic environment. We actually saw a very similar picture. There would have been only one dividend cut, and um, I, I think a similar about 28 of the names would have would have grown their dividend through that period. I think the other area then is market cap. I think um, probably we have seen over the last decade with interest rates so low. A number of uh, particularly U.S. small companies uh, taking on extra debt as it's been so cheap and using that cash to pay out uh, dividends in, in the short term. That, in our mind, is not a sustainable dividend. That's not what we're looking to do. You know, any company can pay a dividend in the short term because they can use some of their cash. They can sell something. They can take on some debt to generate some cash and then pay it out in the form of the dividend. But that tells you nothing about what that business is going to be doing in terms of its dividend three, four, five years from now. And uh, and I think, you know, that is an area that probably um, we've seen a bit more of happen uh, in the last 12 months as, again, you know, extremely easy monetary policy has, um, has allowed that to happen. So I think, um, you know, we're very much continuing to focus on the sustainability of the underlying dividends of the companies that we, that we want to own. Yeah, it's interesting that you mention um, activity further down the market cap scale, because I suppose there's also been talk in the last year or so of the, or even in recent years of kind of um, the AIM market in the UK and how the, admittedly from quite a low level, those companies have been more likely to pay out dividends and have been paying out higher dividends, um, I assume perhaps as a kind of way to, to draw in investors. But yeah, perhaps that's a kind of riskier area that uh, investors will get drawn into. 
Potentially, um, but I think also it's it's you know there are there are good dividends available in smaller cap companies, but you do have to be a bit more selective. You know, if you're finding a good cash generative company in a you know that's got very high barriers to entry and and is in a in a relatively mature stage of its life cycle, but is within a relatively small or niche market, then then those can be attractive. But I think it's the sort of more financial engineering side of mm. you know, creating dividends, if you like, that um, that we're more cautious about. Another interesting thing that you guys mentioned in your literature is the idea that dividend-paying companies can protect against inflation over the longer term. Um, and that, of course, is the, I suppose, the kind of subject, at least in the short term, people are talking about most at the minute. Kind of, how do you feel about the portfolio in, in the context of um, you know, a potential spike, prolonged spike in inflation? And are there any kind of sectors that you would be more comfortable about? Um, equally, any areas you'd be kind of more wary about? Yeah, I think it's a big picture. If you look at um, uh, sort of long-term dividend payments from, say, the S&P 500, for example, and you compare that growth of that distribution to inflation, the correlation over long periods is actually pretty strong. So it's kind of telling you that, um, you know, from, from that perspective, from a sort of pricing power point of view, um, you know, in terms of if you're, you know, receiving that income uh, and using that as, um, you know, as an investor that, you know, to live, if you like, then actually that dividend growth can be very powerful in the sense of, um, you know, the, your sort of protection against inflation, you know, the dividend growth relative to inflation can be quite good. And if you think about that, relative to you know fixed income for example that's quite a different scenario you know these are you know, equities in general would be a good place to be in an inflationary environment sort of big picture and within that i think those companies that you know, pay that dividend and, and again talking about dividend growth is the crucial thing if you've got you know a company that pays a high dividend but that dividend is you know essentially static which is more likely if you've got a high dividend right because it's a bigger number so kind of growing a bigger number is difficult <laughs> Um, sort of rule of large numbers, um, then clearly that can be more effective, right? And so yes, it might be good in the short term, but you know, five years later, as you say, within the sort of inflationary environment, actually the kind of more moderate dividend that's been growing can be kind of a, a potentially better place to be. If you then think of the underlying investment so alongside that, if uh, you know you've got a company that's growing versus a company that's not, again, sort of how does that sort of relate, um, you know, to the capital growth alongside, you know, that's the sort of the powerful things we're looking for. In terms of sort of, again, sort of thinking about where we are from just a very simplistic view of you know, that inflation is going to be higher, we actually believe, you know, a lot of the companies we own are relatively well-placed, in fact, um, you know, because they have good pricing power. These are kind of high-quality companies, so we're looking for a decade, essentially, of top quartile return on capital. Um, these companies generally with sort of you know, higher margins than you know, their competitors and peers. And these are companies, as we've seen through you know, management teams talking about the companies we own, whether it's in the consumer staple space or whether it's in um, exchange group, you know, they're talking about how they can pass on those costs that, yes, we are seeing uh, increasing uh, you know, whether it's cost of goods or, or wages or whatever else it might be, and that they can actually pass that on to their client base. So again, from that perspective, focusing on those kind of quality type businesses with these sort of better margins and that have done it historically as well, right? So again, we're always, we're looking backwards to give us an indication of how these companies can do in different environments. Um, we believe, you know, they're the ones that are best placed for the sort of forward looking uh, environment as well. 
And so I think we, we feel pretty comfortable. I think the other thing to note as well is when we're talking about pricing power is also when the market considers that on a kind of short term versus a medium term basis. So we've seen examples of, you know, companies, I guess, of some record, record Benkita we've known, for example, as a, as a well-known stock in the UK, for example. You know, that earlier on in the year, that, that fell very sharply after results because they were saying we're affected by, you know, supply chain issues, costs are rising, stock falls dramatically. As you then go on, um, we then see more recovery in that stock because managers are talking about, well, yeah, we can't pass on costs immediately. That's going to take us, you know, a quarter or two quarters to build in, but we'll get there. And, you know, we've done that in the past and we're very capable of doing that. Uh, and therefore, you know, you'll see you know, that come through in terms of our financial results and, you know, the, the stock market starts to reward that. So, again, it's sort of you've got to think a little bit about some companies are just can immediately pass on prices, right? They're unaffected. Right? You might be Microsoft and you're a software mm-hmm. business. So your you know, relative uh, cost to sales is extremely low anyway. Uh, and then you know, you've got this recurring revenue stream and it's you know, a product that can't be replaceable. You know, and you just have to, you know, price increases are easy to do. And there you go. Whereas again, if you're fast moving consumer goods business, you can do it, but there's, there might be a little bit of a lack. And I think that's the thing we're also thinking about, thinking about the kind of longer term as opposed to just sort of what's happening immediately in the latest quarter, if you like. Um, I think in, in terms of uh, you know, other things to think about is, you know, again, sort of interest rate rising environment as well, maybe alongside these two elements as well, sort of not necessarily hand in hand, but you've got you know, inflation gets out of hand, what's going to happen to try and resolve that? Um, again, you know, if you're uh, you know, investing in a kind of an income generating asset, then obviously interest rates are very you know key to how you think about valuing that uh, that income over time. Uh, and again, that would come back to kind of thinking about sort of duration, if you like, of your equity portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would again say that sort of moderate yield but growing dividend is absolutely the best place to be in that environment because of that you know that that growth aspect. Um, we saw that through the taper tantrum, for example, in 2013. When that occurred last, if you like, obviously we didn't see interest rate rises, um, but the market was worried that we would. We saw a lot of sort of high yielding equities, particularly sort of the bond proxy type stocks that people would mm. talk about, whether it's you know utilities and things like that, and REITs perform really quite poorly, and, and dividend as a factor very much underperformed. However, our approach actually did very well. We actually outperformed the market sell-off in that period. And again, I think that speaks to the type of dividend company you're buying and the type of income you're generating and how that is being generated over time. And I think you know, that, that approach, what we're currently looking at, worked quite well, actually, um, in the current environment, particularly when you're thinking about uh, your other options, um, which would be you know, the fixed income market and what that looks like relative to what we're potentially investing in. Uh, I think that makes it look really quite attractive. So the dividend yield trailing 12 months of the fund uh, is about 2.5% on a net basis. We've grown our dividend about just under 5% annualised over um, since we launched the fund at the end of 2010. And I think the yield on the benchmark today is about 1.7%, and that's on a gross basis. So actually, you know, probably more like 1.4%, 1.5%. So actually, there's a big differential uh, in terms of that yield you can achieve. And again, I think that's sort of the, the prospects for the types of companies we're owning in the current environment. We're relatively positive on how do you feel about the, I suppose, the kind of style mix in the fund? Um, sounds like you feel relatively relaxed about previous extreme scenarios and perhaps future ones. But, you know, people talk about amid inflation scares and rate rises, that kind of thing. 
perhaps people are more interested in more cyclical businesses and less interested in you know think well things like bond proxies but also i suppose kind of quality and growth names and you mentioned companies like microsoft and um, do you do you try and create much much of a mix or is that kind of a non-issue yeah i think yeah. absolutely i mean we're we are managing a portfolio we want to have uh, a good balance uh, within the fund um, we want to spread our risk across, you know, for us, it's 35 names, but relatively concentrated, but, um, but absolutely. I mean, what the, the way that we sort of view our portfolio at the moment is we have, you know, quality is an aspect that runs throughout what we do. Uh, you have to meet a very stringent quality criteria to get into our portfolio. Uh, and what that means when you look at our portfolio is that the, you know, the return on capital of the portfolio is about double uh, that of the MSCI world. So these are far more profitable businesses. But at the same time, our portfolio trades at a valuation discount to the MSCI world, despite having that far higher quality. So for, for us, you know, quality and value can meet. They are, they don't, you know, they're often thought of as completely separate factors, um, but we're trying to be a little bit greedy and combine the two together to get a sort of best of both worlds element. So when we look at our fund, we think we, today we've got about 50% of the portfolio in what we might describe as, you know, defensive sectors. Uh, or defensive names. Um, so that's typically, you know, weights to consumer staples uh, and and healthcare. So companies that have got robust balance sheets, lots of recurring revenue, things that people are always going to need. Uh, and then we've got about the other half of the portfolio in what we would call cyclical and growth-oriented companies. So more of our industrial names, our consumer discretionary names, uh, our technology names. And um, I think that balance has been quite important over the life of this strategy in terms of how we've generated our performance in that what we're trying to do is ensure we are you know, providing some downside protection, if you like, if things get difficult, because you know, in that environment, we know, you know the market tends to have a flight towards quality and defensive names. But at the same time, when markets are more optimistic, we want to make sure we've got a good exposure to companies that are benefiting from the pickup in the economic cycle, uh, as well as having exposure to some companies who are uh, exposed to long-term secular growth themes, but are very cash generative and therefore can pay out a dividend. So yeah, I think having that balance is important. Now, clearly, I think over this year, we have seen periods where value has outperformed growth. And, you know, that's been a rare occurrence over the last 10 years. And indeed, you know, we saw a sharp value rotation uh, in Q1, but it was relatively short over a relatively short period, it happened very quickly, and then that actually faded back over the sort of uh, over the summer period. Then we saw another little value rotation in September, um, but year to date now, growth is ahead of value. So I think it just shows you, you know, growth has been a good place historically. Yes, value has been sort of uh, much more in favour this year, um, but from our point of view, it's trying to maintain a balance between these two elements, but uh, having that constant focus on on quality. Yes, yeah. It's been, as you mentioned, it's been a very difficult uh, decade or so to be a value manager. You've had to be very, very patient or very good at, at timing. But I would say in terms of that, you know, there's, there's a, there is a, it, it's kind of, it, I mean, we do it ourselves because it's helpful to think mm. about. But clearly, you know, it's a, it's a relatively simplistic view, value or growth. You know, if you look at mm. a value benchmark and a growth benchmark, 
the, the types of companies and the sector distributions within those two um, indices will look very different over the last 20 years, right? You know, energy was growth and its value, financials are growth and value, you know, and everything sort of swaps and jumps around a lot, whether it's healthcare and biotech and, and everything else. And I think, you know, when you look at kind of the, what we've sort of seen, as, as Matt was, uh, was talking about this year, uh, and, you know, really started at the end of last year was that kind of reflation reopening trades where we got the vaccine news in November. And that really kind of kicked on through uh, the first half of this year. Um, but, you know, from the previous year, it was the kind of hyper growth and sort of stay at home type stocks that did best, if you like. So there was a bit of a sort of maybe taking something away from that. But what you did see was um, because everyone thought, you know, the rising tide would lift all boats in terms of that economic growth, you know, everything going kind of great guns. Uh, with all the stimulus measures, you saw both economically sensitive um, kind of value stocks uh, do well, kind of in those more sort of cyclical sectors, and also interest rate sort of sensitive value stocks like financials do well. You then saw all that turn, uh, as Matt said, in the summer when you had like the Delta variant issues come about and people were worried, well, actually, maybe you know, the economy's growth might slow and then we get worries around China and you know, that driver of economic growth might be um, potentially questionable. And therefore, the kind of more quality growth actually outperforms the hyper growth type, you know, Zoom stocks and the Pelotons, et cetera, actually continue to underperform. Um, and actually, there's a sort of shift to different type of growth company. Then when you've just seen the little rotations we've just seen uh, in terms of the value, it was really the interest rate sensitive value stocks doing well. Uh, and the economically sensitive value stocks didn't do much. So again, it's a very different part of the value spectrum, if you like, that was performing better or worse. But if you just looked at the value benchmark, you wouldn't necessarily have seen that kind of difference. Um, and then underlying all of that, as Matt said about the oil price earlier, um, you know, commodity stocks did really well. Uh, and that's, again, maybe potentially somewhat different because you had an oil price rally that was extremely strong mm. um, that would then also help the value index because that's where a lot of commodity stocks happen to be, which might be, again, quite different to that sort of value, if you like. So again, you know, we're, we're not trying to say one way or the other i think it's just really helpful to dig in a little bit further to just see what type of growth companies are doing well what type of value companies are doing well at that particular reason and why i think that just gives you a bit of a clearer picture about kind of what people particularly the market is rewarding at, at any one time so while the fund the fund does seem to fare well against other global income names in terms of total returns it has lagged the msci world so how would you i mean perhaps you'd reiterate some of the points you've made but how would you counter someone who'd say i might just buy a global tracker and then you know take capital gains when i if and when i need income yeah no it's a good question i think the yeah, i think the, the the pushback on that would be if you look at it on a risk adjusted basis or if you take into account the fact that um you know the the beta of this portfolio is is uh around about 0 0.83 0 0.85 uh then the returns on a risk adjusted basis are certainly um uh, considerably better than the, the than the benchmark because you've taken uh, significantly less risk slash uh, slash volatility, uh, and also you've been paid a you know a sustainable and rising dividend over that period, um, you know which you you wouldn't be getting um, by investing in uh, in in the tracker. You'd have seen quite a significant dividend cut through through the periods like 2020, for example. I think the other thing to note as well is on the benchmark is yeah, why is the benchmark performed. Well, because essentially we've underperformed a little bit, but actually we've kept up pretty well with the, with the benchmark. We're, we're not far behind. Whereas our approach has been focused only on dividend paying companies. If you look at the benchmark, it has been driven in, in a huge part by the kind of FANG type stocks. 
they're very large market cap. They have grown very strongly and they really dominate the benchmark. If, and they, but the vast majority of them don't pay a dividend, so they're not accessible to us from our uh, investment uh, process. If you strip out some of those high growth non-dividend paying companies, then actually uh, our fund would have significantly outperformed that benchmark. So that's not to say we're, you know, that's the wrong thing to do. Mm. Um, but it's just, it's a very, you know, it's not quite an apples to apples comparison. So again, you'd have to sort of really think about, you know, if you're buying that benchmark, that those sort of drivers are going to continue to occur. And obviously, you know, we're not necessarily trying to compete with that benchmark. We're trying to provide our investors, you know, the, the things that Matt was just describing, you know, as part of you know, a wider sort of investment portfolio. I think the point on, you know, sort of taking capital is one that, you know, potentially people can do. I think the potential sort of, you know, tax implications of when you do it and capital gains and, and things like that, which would be one thing. I think the second thing as well is it's very difficult to do market timing. So, you know, you've got to be adept at thinking about, you know, if you did it mechanically and you did it at the end of every quarter, say, to receive your income as a sort of a capital in terms of selling some of your capital, um, by chance, you know, last year would have been pretty horrific because you would have sold a chunk of your portfolio right at the bottom, which is sort of end of March. If you went back, you know, financial crisis, actually, funnily enough, it'd be, it'd be pretty similar. So, you know, you could be, it would have a, quite a significant impact potentially on your kind of uh, capital growth if you were, you know, removing funds at certain times. And it could work the other way, right? You could take some profits and you know, markets would fall, et cetera. But mm. um, I think it just adds a, a, an element of difficulty and uncertainty to, to what that would look like for a sort of a longer term investment. If that's what you were using your investment for in terms of to generate income, um, you could be you know, significantly affecting your capital base, which would, again, have, have a bigger impact. I think it's interesting generally how the perhaps the dividend cuts last year reignited the that kind of focus on total return versus income. And like you say, there are various tax and um, technical details that you need to, to bear in mind. Yeah, and, you know, and we, would, we would argue, you know, if, if you were invested in our fund, you would not have seen those dividend cuts. So again, it's not all dividend paying companies mm. are created equally. Um, you know, there's, there's different ways of trying to kind of assess that. Uh, and I think, you know, when we were launching the fund and talking about our sort of moderate yield approach, you know, global equity income, particularly in the UK market, was not um, you know, widely held investment for UK clients. You know, it was very much a UK income was where you generated your dividend um, from your investment portfolio. And actually, you know, global income wasn't considered um, necessarily because maybe the yields were you know, relatively lower, right? Kind of the US has a lower yield. Why would I look to that to sort of buy dividend paying companies as an example? Um, yeah, and Europe is better, and there's other areas such as Brazil, for example. Australia pays a pretty good dividend, for example. Mm. But there wasn't even an IA global equity income section when we launched. There's only a sort of a handful of funds having that approach. But clearly, the UK market was massively dominated by certain sectors, whether it's you know, particularly materials and commodities, um, you know, the banking sector, which all paid a, a, a good high dividend and actually were growing really fast, right, through uh, up to the financial crisis, you know, things like oil price had risen dramatically and you know, almost up to 15% of the global benchmark was in energy stocks. And that was a brilliant place to be. You got a high dividend and you got high growth. Including the financial crisis happened and that completely turned on its head. So you got the exact opposite of those two things, huge dividend cuts and uh, a massive cut to your, um, your capital. 
and I think we saw very similar, you know, this time round, right, in terms of the you know the global pandemic. Again, you know, if you're a UK investor, kind of looking outside of the UK for income, uh, it's actually a, we think a much better way to do it. And I think it's just you know that understanding of maybe you you might not get quite as high yield as you might want if you like, or, or have historically um, had. But again, if it's sustainable, then actually that makes a big difference. And I think that is getting much better understood. Mm. I think the, you know, the global income asset base, particularly in the UK, is, is growing quite significantly and, and probably at the on the back of sort of the UK income pot kind of becoming smaller. Um, it'll be interesting to touch on the UK, but I was going to mention on the kind of regional allocation front, it's interesting that you guys don't seem to be focused at the minute on Asia, which... I mean, that's been that's had some very different stories over the course of the pandemic. Um, I suppose last year, with dividend problems in in the UK, there was a lot of interest in what Asia could offer. Of course, this year you've seen lots of drama, particularly in China. Um, but how do you guys view the region? You know, do you find enough interesting quality companies there, um, or or is it kind of is it not of interest yet? Yeah, no, I mean, I think when we look back over, you know, the life of uh, the, the the strategy, I think we've seen um, an increasing number of uh, Asian equities meet our requirement for this consistently high level of return on capital relative to what you might what you might have seen 20 years ago. Um, so, you know, there are more opportunities in there. And um we have uh, reduced our exposure to Asia through this year, um, mainly because we sold uh, one position in, in Asia, which was our holding in a, uh, a company called Anta Sports. Anta Sports, you can kind of think of as like a sort of uh, Chinese domestically oriented Nike or Adidas, but sort of tier two. So, you know, Chinese middle class would generally like to buy a Western brand, but if they can't afford that, then they'd buy something like an uh, an Anta sportswear good. So it's sportswear and shoes. Um, and we bought the company uh, back in, I think it was 2017. Back then, you know, it had this fantastic characteristic of 10 years of very high return on capital. Uh, I think we bought it on a sort of mid-teen uh, PE multiple for earnings growth of about 20%. Uh, it offered a 3.5% yield that, again, was growing at that sort of um, 20% sort of level. And uh, fast forward to the middle of this year, and uh, we'd seen a really significant re-rating in this name to the point where the share price had gone up so much that now the dividend yield was well below 1%. And we simply couldn't justify continuing to hold a company that, that yields that low level of income. You know, we don't want to have a barbelled portfolio of high dividend yielders having to be put in the portfolio to offset some very low dividend yielders, for example. We prefer to try and keep the dividend distribution um, more centered. So, you know, it was for good reasons rather than bad uh, or anything specific in terms of our outlook for Asia that led us to reduce that exposure. And we keep a completely open mind to um, adding positions um, into the portfolio from that region. And, and, you know, we're always actively actively looking at that, that region. So, yeah, it's got good characteristics. I mean, you do have to be a little more uh, nimble and aware. I mean, we, I think what 
you know, 2021 has shown us is the importance of, you know, regulated businesses and how um, regulators can have a big impact on companies, whether it was in actually thinking back to 2020 with the impact on the banking sector and what can happen with dividends there, or indeed what we've seen in terms of China with their crackdown on the in the education sector um, and on some of the tech platforms. Um, so I think we always feel we need a bit more of a, a valuation discount to get into um, certain positions in in that region. But um, that, you know, that doesn't mean we're not searching for them. Well, um, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. But um, many thanks to both Ian and Matthew for, for joining me. And thank you for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.